Hello, Common Ground, as well as any other visitors that are joining us today. Man, it's, it's good to be together in this, uh, this strange digital moment we're plunged back into. As winter is here, yes, it's true, winter is here. The rain is coming down as I share this message. And so if the rain gets a bit louder and you're wondering what that background noise is, it's not an airplane that's hovering over the building. Actually, it's the rain that is thundering down. Winter is here and it's cold. I hope wherever you are as you hear this, that you are warm and dry and that Christ would speak to your heart. It's true, as a country, we've uh, ratcheted up our uh, our levels. We're back up to an adjusted level four as COVID is on the rise. Uh, driving here, preparing to preach this message today. Just so grateful that we get to be in the story of Mark again. Uh, as, as it really does feel like, oh, what's about to happen? H- how's this going to go? It feels like the storm of COVID is really, we're in the middle of it again, especially it's happening in Gauteng. I must be honest with you, as this has been happening in kind of our right now world, I've loved week by week just being in the story of Jesus as Mark has been leading us through Christ's life and Christ's ministry. And, and, and I found as I came to prepare to speak today, um, just just this real affection in my heart to be in the story of Jesus, to, 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 to be able to live in his world for a little bit as a way of not just escape, but it, it, it's just been living in the truth and living in the wonder of the story of Jesus has been such an anchor to my soul really in this time. I trust that it would be the same to you. Where are we in the story and the journey in the book of Mark? Well, we're coming to the final chapters of our journey. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 11 and we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 25. So wherever you are, why don't you open up your Bible and follow with me as we kind of track with the passage. We'll read a bit and then unpack what it means for our lives. Today, I think you're in for a bit of a treat. There's a couple of spicy meatballs we're going to be unpacking together. And so without further ado, let's uh, jump into this text, uh, Mark chapter 11 and reading from verse 1. And uh, I'll read the first verse and then just uh, orientate us a little bit about where we are. Let's jump in. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, all right, so they, they, let's just locate ourselves geographically. This is Jesus and his disciples. They're coming via Bethany, via the Mount of Olives, and entering into or, or getting near to Jerusalem. And this is where Mark wants us to know we're about to move. We're moving into Jerusalem. Jesus has, uh, has finally made it to Jerusalem. He's been on his way here ever since Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It's like Christ knew he's been heading towards this place in this moment. Jerusalem being the heart of the, heart of the Jewish faith, the heart of Judaism. It's also the heart of kind of the, the Jewish leadership as well. And uh, these final seven days, Mark records these is Jesus' final seven days here in Jerusalem. It's actually the middle of the book of Mark that, uh, that, that we've, been, uh, we've been working towards this moment. Sorry, from the middle of the book of Mark, we've been working towards this moment. And now that we're here, what you're going to see is that the whole story kind of speeds up. Everything kind of ratchets up a a gear in speed and it starts to uh, happen very, very fast. If you're an Avengers fan, this is like the end game right now. All the pieces have been put into place. They're all assembled on the board and now the end game is about to be played. 
This is Jerusalem. But, but we also see mentioned here is Bethany. Bethany is some commentators say Jesus' favorite place to be in the world. It was kind of his home away from home. And whenever Jesus came to Jerusalem, he didn't stay in the city of Jerusalem. He stayed in this place called Bethany uh, where some of his mates, uh, Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Mary, uh, Martha, they all lived in Bethany. And uh, Jesus seemed to love to be there. I hope so. I hope that in the midst of uh, Jesus going through all of these difficult things he's about to face and endure in Jerusalem, every night he gets to escape to a place that he loves to be with people whom he enjoys being with. And then we see here too the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is across the valley from Jerusalem. I've got a picture here that uh, I took two years ago, feels so long ago, but two years ago I had the privilege of being in Israel and being in Jerusalem. Take a look at this picture over here. This picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. And what you see here is Jerusalem is across the valley. That's the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives is 100 meters higher above sea level than Jerusalem. And so you can see the way you can look down and see the base there of Temple Mount as you look down upon Jerusalem and Jesus would have come into Jerusalem down through this valley and up towards Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives is also associated with the coming of the Messiah. Um, in fact, Ezekiel prophesied at the time of the fall of Jerusalem in, in 586 BC, he prophesied that the glory of the Lord would depart from Jerusalem and settle upon the Mount of Olives. And so a significant place. And uh, we'll see it again in the coming chapters as we read together in Mark. But let's pick up our story as Jesus enters now that we're located in the city and where he is. Let's see what happens in our story as Mark leads us through. And reading now from verse two, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And as they went away, they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Hey man, guys, what's going on here? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. It's a great gap for us to stop and pray. God, would you come and speak to us today as we look at your word? God, as we step into your story, there's all sorts of things going on in our world around us, both in weather as well as in COVID climate and global climate, God. But as we step into the story of your life, Christ, we ask that you would speak to each of us of who you are, of what you came to do then, and what that means for our lives now. Amen. Okay, so let's take, let's take a look at this first chunk we just read. Now, it's quite possible that Jesus, who had been to Jerusalem many times before, had stayed in Bethany many times before, had commuted uh, this way many times before. It, it's quite possible that Jesus was uh, and, and had seen these donkeys tied up many times as he walked and made his way into Jerusalem. And so he may well have even known the owner of the, the cult that his disciples went to go and get. Uh, it's possible. It's also possible that this was kind of a supernatural revelation that Jesus had of uh, where the cult would be and what would be doing. And, um, and, but the bottom line is we just don't know. 
But what is clear as we read this, especially the way Mark deliberately records it for us to show us something, Mark is showcasing for us the foreknowledge of Jesus, that Jesus knew where it would be. He knew when it was gonna be there and he knew what was about to happen. Mark wants us to see as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem this, fi- this final week, Jesus is aware of what is coming. He's aware, he's got an intuition about the future, not just about the donkey, but, but, but Mark wants us to know Jesus is aware of what's gonna be happening in the next six, seven days. He's aware not just of the donkey, but he's aware of the impending cross. And so as Jesus, Jesus enters the city, perhaps a part of the story we're familiar with from the Easter story, we read from verse eight. Many spread out their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed behind were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And then when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the 12. It's an interesting little chunk of scripture there. There's a crowd, they gather, they're singing songs, they're shouting, they're welcoming Jesus. They've ripped down palm branches. They're waving them around. They're throwing their their cloaks down. I mean, this is like a king's welcome. They welcome Jesus. They're singing and shouting. And at the climax of it all, Jesus arrives at the temple. And then... Well, and then nothing. (laughs) It's a bit of a really big anticlimax, don't you think? The big parade, the shouting, the singing, the everything building up. Jesus finally arrives at the temple and he he gets off and he has a little bit of a look around. And then he calls his disciples and they go home. What's, what's this all about? Well, Mark is setting up for us the kind of the, the, main, uh, the main scene for the next three chapters. 11, 12, and 13 are all going to focus around the temple. Chapters 11 that we're in now, chapter 12 and chapter 13, all focus in on the temple. The real reason that Jesus is in Jerusalem is not Jerusalem itself. It's in fact the temple. And all Jesus has time for right now is a kind of recce as he looks through and susses it out. But then the light is fading and Jesus has to leave because the sun is going down. And I think there's a little clue here for what Jesus is coming to do in the temple. I'll read you again. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. You see, it's late in the day, the sun is setting. And I think what what Mark wants us to know is that the sun is figuratively setting on the temple too. Just like the day, the temple's time is coming to an end. And now as we progress, let me give you a little bit of a heads up here. We're getting to a few spicy meatballs in this story and uh, we'll unpack them as we go along. Don't, don't, don't worry, we will. Um, but, but I want you to see something as we go. I, Mark is such an incredible writer as he details the story. You can see why Peter picked him to record his account of Jesus's life and ministry. Mark is such a skilled writer. Now what he does is he uses a literary device that's become affectionately known as a Markian 
sandwich after Mark who, who kind of used this device. And what Mark does is Mark takes one story and then he splits it in two and he inserts another story in between these two halves. And so it's called a Markian sandwich because you've got the two pieces of bread, right? With the filling, uh, the other story in the middle. And these stories then uh, throw light on one another so as to show us and illuminate to us the point that Mark is trying to make. As we read this, see if you can spot the sandwich and start to work out with me the point that Mark is making. Let's read from verse 12. In verse 12, and, and on the following day, this is the next day now, they wake up and, and, and when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Starting to get a bit spicy. We'll get there in a second. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the temples of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city and as they passed by in the morning, this is Jesus and the disciples, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots and Peter remembered and said to them, look, Rabbi, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Okay, so before we unpack what it means, did you see it? Did you see Mark's sandwich there? The story of the fig tree split in half and the story of the temple in between. Uh, the fig tree there to tell us something about the temple. That's what's going on here. Let's start by asking the question, what about the poor fig tree? What has Jesus got against this tree, right? The cursing of this fig tree is the only miracle recorded in the gospels that is a miracle of destruction. And there are many who've struggled with this little episode in Christ's life and ministry. I mean, it looks like, it looks like Jesus is hangry, isn't it? There it is. We see Jesus is hungry. He comes to the tree and then it looks a bit like he lashes out at this poor tree out of season for figs. Bertrand Russell, the atheist, in his essay, Why I'm Not a Christian and other essays on religion and related subjects, said this. It's just that Jesus, uh, this is Jesus at his um, unreasonableness. It's vindictive fury is what Russell said. T.W. Mason said this, the energy spent miraculously cursing the tree could have been spent causing uh, figs to grow rather, and then at least they could have all eaten figs. Now, I want to share with you at least two reasons today why these guys are wrong. And uh, let me jump into the first one. The first one has got to do with Mark and Mark's um, writing of this text, what Mark was saying and what Mark was meaning. Here's what you and I don't know. Because we buy our figs, if you buy figs at all, from either someone on the side of a road or someone in a supermarket, but we don't see figs growing much on trees. Here's what we don't know. In fact, there are two fruiting seasons of figs. The main fruiting season where these giant kind of voluptuous, gorgeous, fruity figs grow. Just as a little aside, when I was in Israel, uh, the one morning we went to breakfast. 
And uh, it was one of those big spread breakfasts and uh, you could choose lots of things at this breakfast buffet. And uh, I went past and I saw what I thought was a pear. And I thought, I don't feel like a pear this morning. And uh, two days later, as I was, um, we had moved on somewhere else, I saw a fig tree that was in a ripe season. And I saw a fig and I realized that that morning, that pear that I left behind wasn't in fact a pear. It was this ginormous, voluptuous fig. And so, so they have this main fruiting season where these beautiful ripe big figs grow but but as we know this was not the season of the of fruiting figs mark tells us that this is the season where the tree was in leaf now there is a second fruiting season of figs where it's not figs that go they're called nops k-n-o-p-s in hebrew the word is pagim Uh, this is like a uh, it's like a little bud that swells at the time when the tree is in leaf and these little buds these nops these pagim when it is not in in season for the ripe big fig that's produced, these pagim grow there. And these guys are eaten for food by the people at Christ's time as well. And so when Mark says it's not in season for figs, he, he, he could just as, he, just as easily have said, it wasn't the season for ripe figs, it was the season of pagim. And so Jesus, hungry, goes and he sees all these leaves, meaning there should be pagim on these, on these branches. And he gets there and they're not. The tree that's supposed to draw people in to nourish them has ceased from doing that anymore. So that's the first reason uh, we see here. The second reason here too is this. Bible scholars as early as the fifth century understood that this is what we call an enacted parable. Jesus is showing us an enacted parable. And we see Mark's brilliant writing sandwiches uh, the story of the temple in because this is in fact a parable, not about a fig, but this parable is in fact about the temple. The fig tree is, um, is, is mirroring, uh, mirroring the temple. The tree, the fig tree is unfruitful. And so too, the temple has become unfruitful. The tree, like the temple, is nice from far, but up close is far from nice. From a distance, the tree is full of foliage. Uh, the foliage is a promise of pechim. There should, be, there should be life there. There should be nourishment there. There's loads going on, right? Likewise, the temple is full from far, full of people. There's lots of activity. There's a hive, there's hustle, there's bustle. There's loads going on, which should mean loads of spiritual activity. It should mean worship and prayer and people getting closer to God. But when you get closer and you get there and you look at it up close, there's loads of activity, but there's no fruitfulness. It's not translating into worship and prayer. It's more commercial than it is spiritual. And, and, and this is the temple. This is, the, the, this is at the heart of Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the heart of Israel and there is no fruit. The temple and the temple leadership have lost its purpose. It's lost its way. It's no longer fulfilling its purpose. It's no longer doing what it should be doing. The temple is being abused and Jesus' actions are in protest to the abuse of the temple. Jesus actually stops the process of sacrifices being given. 
It looks like Jesus shuts the whole thing down. But in reality, the temple enterprise was so big and so much bigger than just one man. And so as much as Jesus did stop it in that moment, in the reality is when Jesus left and went back to Bethany, everything would have resumed going exactly as it was before. But Mark records Jesus's actions to us as a loud and clear message of Christ. The temple has ceased to be about what the temple is supposed to be about. And Jesus is against the abuse of the temple. It's a big message that Mark is delivering to us. What about this question that you may have? It looks like Jesus is angry. And for some of us, we struggle with the idea of Jesus getting angry, right? It really does look like Jesus is angry. In fact, John tells us of the same passage that Jesus sits down and he, and he plaits together cords so as to make a whip, so as to drive people out of the temple. It looks like Jesus is angry. Here's the thing you've got to remember. Righteous anger is the flip side of love. Righteous anger is the flip side of love. When someone or something that you love is being attacked or destroyed or abused, anger, righteous anger is the, the appropriate response. God's anger is the appropriate response in defense to something that he loves, to his beloved being hurt and abused. It's righteous anger in Christ that, that kind of rises up in defense of God's good, pure, lovely, beloved thing that's being abused. And Jesus gives us a window into why this temple abuse is so tragic. As he teaches them, he reminds us about the purpose of this very temple. We read, I'll read it to you again in verse 17. And he was teaching them saying, is it not written, my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers. What Jesus is doing is he's actually quoting from the Old Testament from two places. I think the one is Jeremiah 3 or Jeremiah 6. We're not going to focus there. That's the den of robbers. But, uh, but Isaiah 56 is where Jesus is quoting from the heart of what he's trying to say. And, and I really would encourage you to go back and reread the whole chapter of Isaiah 56. It's profound that Christ chooses this passage to speak about the heart of the purpose of the temple. I'll read to you two verses as we put them up on the screen. Listen to this. Isaiah 56 verse 7 and 8. This is where Jesus is quoting from. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain. Where's my holy mountain? It's the temple mount. It's the, the place where the temple is. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, here it is, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the Lord God, so who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. 
What Jesus is saying here is the temple is to be pure, is to be dedicated to God's holy purposes. And when it is, and when it's functioning like it should be, it's like a fireplace at the, at the heart of a home in the middle of a cold winter. It warms the whole building. And when the whole building, the whole nation, the whole city of Jerusalem, because of the temple at his heart is warm, it glows and it radiates outwards as a light to all the nations so that those who are far, those uh, those who are outsiders would be able to see who God is and be brought in. It's an echo, if you're familiar with the Bible, of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And because of the corrupt leadership, the temple has lost its way. And because the temple, the heart of Jerusalem and Judaism has kind of gone cold, the result is the nations who, who are looking in, who should be learning and seeing who God is through his people are missing out on seeing and experiencing the love of God. And so many thought the Messiah would come and cleanse the temple of the Gentiles, removing them from the temple. It's one of the things that was prophesied in, in what's called the Psalms of Solomon, a book in the Apocrypha, not included in the scriptures. But, but many people thought the Messiah would come and he would remove all the Gentiles from the temple. In fact, Jesus does not come to do that. Jesus does not cleanse the temple of Gentiles. But Jesus, in fact, we could, we could see it, Psalm uh, at Isaiah 56, is rather than, than, rather than cleansing the temple of the Gentiles, Jesus is preparing the temple for the Gentiles so that they can see who Christ is. And the final piece of Mark's sandwich tells us what Jesus is really saying in uh, verse 20 and 21. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The fig tree is withered. It's dead right down to its roots. There will never be a harvest from that tree again. There's no more fruit the tree's death is right down to its roots. And what Jesus is saying is, what Jesus has done in the temple is not so much cleansing it and restoring it, but it's the dissolution of the temple. Edwards, commenting on this passage, says this, Jesus is not the reformer of the temple. Rather, he is its fulfillment and its replacement. For his death on the cross is the perfect atonement for sin. The fig tree represents the temple and with it its sacrificial system of worship. As, as a means of relating to God and worshiping God and receiving forgiveness from God. And, and what Jesus says here is to its roots, it's being pulled out and Christ himself is replacing it. And so now we don't approach God through sacrifices of animals, through burnt offerings. We, we don't approach God through the temple. Now we approach God through Jesus. Jesus has now become the means by which we relate to God um, and, we, and we, we, we receive forgiveness from God. Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice without blemish. Jesus, who is incorruptible, perfectly powerful. Jesus, the ultimate mediator between God who is perfect and sinless and you and I who are not. Jesus not only becomes the mediator to Israel, but Jesus becomes the mediator to all the nations, which is why you and I and, and all of us, so most of us listening today, uh, we're, we're from non-Jewish heritage, we relate to Christ not on the basis of the temple, to God not on the basis of the temple, but we relate to God on the basis of Jesus. He has become the new center, the new heart of all of God's people. Jesus is not against the fig tree. 
Jesus is against the abuse of the temple by the leaders and for the establishment of a perfect temple that would reveal God to all the peoples of the earth. That's what's going on in this passage. God wants all people to know his personhood and his love. And so Christ comes as the fulfillment and the, and the culmination of the temple, if you will. It's perfect replacement. The once and for all, perfect, sinless, without blemish sacrifice that you and I, imperfect, would receive cleansing and forgiveness and right standing with God that we would be able to relate to God on the basis of what Christ has done. Incredible, profound. I mean, just so well written by Mark. You just got to stop and marvel. Look how he constructed that so we can see what he's saying. And then Jesus continued and he, he readdresses the disciples who, who would kind of, the, the disciples would be those who would remain and continue the mission of Christ. When he descended to heaven, verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but receives, sorry, but believes what he says will, will come to pass. It will be done for him. Now on the walk home from Jerusalem, from the temple back to Bethany, they would have come across and they would have walked past a hill that Herod, who was actually the rebuilder of this temple, Herod the Great who rebuilt and shaped so much around Jerusalem. Herod had taken a hill and he had broken down the hill in order, in order to reshape it to become a feature in the landscape that he was looking for. And so Jesus walking past this hill that Herod had broken down and reshaped and molded into something that he wanted says to his disciples, this is what he says. You think, you think this system, you think Herod has got real power to do this? Let me tell you that those who, who live by faith, they will do greater things than this system ever, ever did. He says, we must have faith in God. Michael Eaton on this passage says, have faith in God could just as easily be translated Hold to the faithfulness of God. Hold to the faithfulness of God. Faith, faith is knowing that God is faithful. Faith is holding to the faithfulness of God. In an age where many think of faith as kind of just this, um, this conjuring up, you know, conjure up and then we claim from God that which we want. Eaton reminds us, no, faith is holding to the faithfulness of God in the face of whatever comes our way. Christ followers, we're those who hold to the faithfulness of God. Jesus continues, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Forgive so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses too. It's amazing having just taught us about the temple, shown us what Jesus is doing. Jesus lands by speaking personally to his followers. And he says, you know what? In this new kingdom, in the wake of the new temple that is my body for you guys, in this new dispensation of following God, my followers are to be known as people of faith and people of forgiveness. People of faith and people of forgiveness. How about you, Common Grounder? In this moment of COVID, in this moment we're facing, Christ says, I want you to be those people in your society who are people of faith 
and people of forgiveness. Let me pray for us today. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you today. Having heard your word, we thank you that you are the new temple, that you are the perfect sacrifice, that your body was broken, torn down, destroyed. And Jesus, you were resurrected to new life. You took the consequence of sin and triumphed over it, God. That we, we get to relate to God on the basis of your perfect sacrifice, of your acceptability to God, your perfection. In contrast, stark contrast, Lord, to my imperfection. And thank you, Jesus, that I can stand before you not condemned. I can stand before you righteous because of your sacrifice, Jesus, because of your cross for my life. Jesus, I, I just ask for every, every Christ follower that you would right now speak to us of, our, of your perfect sacrifice and our guiltless state before you that we do not stand condemned anymore, but we stand righteous before you, God. Not just having had our sins atoned for, but having had the door to fellowship and relationship to you open, God. That in this moment, as so much unravels around us, God, we can know you. And know that we're not living under your frown, but we're living under your smile as your children because of what Christ has done. If you're not yet a Christ follower, you want to you, you take this moment to put your faith in Jesus. I want to lead you in a prayer. Jesus, thank you that you who were perfect and sinless took my place, who's imperfect, and sinful God. That ultimately you took the consequences of my sin in order that I would be able to go free and that now I can know God perfectly. I can know God uh, from, from a state of perfect righteousness, not having had my sin between us but I can know you that I can, that I can be accepted by God, not because of anything I've done, not because of anything that's happened in a temple, but because Christ of who you are and what you have done. And so I have now relationship with you. God, I want to know you. God, I want to walk with you in this moment, God. I pray that you would draw near to me as I draw near to you right now. You pray that prayer to Jesus. And lastly, I want to pray for us as a church. Jesus, would we be a people in this moment of faith and a people of forgiveness? That we would be a people of faith in who you are and what you've done, God. Faith enough to move mountains, to take on great challenges as your children, God. But also people who horizontally relate to one another in transformed ways, ways of forgiveness and ways of love. Ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.